trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, it's all about getting a firm grasp on reality and hanging on for dear life. Because right now there's a ton of stuff that is trying to uh, get us separated from reality. Or at least living in some kind of a fantasy world where <laughs> we really uh, we really don't know what's going on. We have to turn to someone in authority. Please uh, tell me what it all means. Help me understand. Well, this is about learning to think clearly and independently. Doesn't mean that I have all the answers, because I certainly don't. But I am definitely going to encourage you, think a little closer about what's happening in the world around us and what you can do, what you were born to do to make the world a better place. With that said, let me thank my sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. They include HSLAmmo.com, also MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and also GarageDoorProServices.com. Now, you'll also note uh, that when you go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, I do have an affiliate link through Borelli Incorporated. If you are into the shooting sports at all, or you're looking for, you know, parts, magazines, cleaning supplies, ammo, accessories, that kind of thing, you can save a significant amount of money. Some of their daily deals are really killer. And, uh, yes, that affiliate link means when you make a purchase, they pay a small commission to me. So you help yourself. You help me. And I greatly appreciate it. Well, let's dive right in. Interesting things happening here as, as we get things going. And, you know, this is probably the story that needs to lead out. And that is uh, we could score one more for the conspiracy theorists among us in that uh, it was, <sighs> quote the Raven, QTR, Substack, says it's official. A Senate report has concluded that COVID came from a research-related incident. Isn't that interesting? Not seen a lot about this in the mainstream media, but, you know, can you blame them? Right? We all, well, that's, well, that's irresponsible. And, of course, Dr. Fauci, above all, doesn't like to answer questions like this. I, this, is, this is the reason why I want to see that man sitting in a courtroom under oath and having to answer questions, you know, with, with hopefully a team of very skilled attorneys making sure he can't squirm and slippery, you know, you know, weasel his way out of everything that, uh, that he's being asked to account for. Quoth the Raven says, It's the moment we all knew was coming. A Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions interim report from October 27th, titled An Analysis of the Origins of the COVID-19 Pandemic, has concluded that the origins of COVID were more likely based in a lab as part of a research-related incident and not zoonotic. Now, again, I'm, you know, I'm not an infectious disease expert or anything like that, but it didn't just occur naturally, you know, in the, in the animal kingdom and somebody ate a bunch of bat soup or whatever and, and came down with this, this virus. Research-related incident. A couple things we can draw from that. That would mean that uh, likely it was a lab leak, if they're saying research-related incident, and the most important thing, that would mean that COVID was a man-made virus, or at least a, a, a virus that had been tinkered with and altered and souped up through medical research, biowarfare research to be more accurate. 
What does that tell us? Well, I don't know. There, I mean, some people, well, that means they did it for, you know, the depopulating of the world. I don't know that. But it does draw into question a whole lot of things that have been stated to us as fact that later turned out to be not true. And here you've got this bipartisan health, education, labor and pensions committee actually, you know, showing some lengthy analysis that reviews publicly available open source information to examine the two prevailing theories of origin of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now, Quotha Raven says, among other conclusions, the report notes, while precedent of previous outbreaks of human infections from contact with animals favors the hypothesis that a natural zoonotic spillover is responsible for the origin of SARS-CoV-2, the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 that resulted in the COVID-19 pandemic was most likely the result of a research-related incident. In other words, all of us conspiracy theorists floating the idea of a lab link, lab leak rather, just because of the totally coincidental fact that the virus showed up on a virology lab's doorstep have now been validated by the U.S. Senate. Now, there's another section titled Problems with the Natural Zoonotic Hypothesis in the report. It says, based on precedent and genomics, and genomics rather, the most likely scenario for a zoonotic origin of the COVID-19 pandemic is that SARS-CoV-2 crossed over the species barrier from an intermediate host to humans. However, the available evidence is also consistent, perhaps more so, with a direct bat-to-human spillover. Both scenarios remain plausible and, in the absence of additional information, should be considered equally valid hypotheses. However, nearly three years after the COVID-19 pandemic began, critical evidence that would prove the emergence of, that the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 and resulting COVID-19 pandemic was caused by a natural zoonotic spillover is missing. And then in the report's conclusion, it says... Quote, based on the analysis of the publicly available information, it appears reasonable to conclude that the COVID-19 pandemic was, more likely than not, the result of a research-related incident. New information made publicly available and independently verifiable could change this assessment. However, the hypothesis of a natural zoonotic origin no longer deserves the benefit of the doubt or the presumption of accuracy. That report was signed off on by Richard Burr, U.S. Senator and Ranking Member, U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. I know. The, the fact checkers, well, that's not, uh, where's the peer-reviewed, you know, studies? And what, the, the New England Journal of, of Medicine, have they weighed in on this? I know. Anything, any reason not to believe. But this is something that I think the conspiracy theorists actually have, have nailed from the very beginning. So what do we do about it? You know, I mean, what can we do? Well, I guess the first thing I'll do is I'll withdraw my funding. We don't really have a, a choice there. National Institutes of Health, among others, apparently still are funding research into the coronavirus. What was I seeing in the news the other day? Something about the researchers at Bo- in Boston had found a way to soup up the coronavirus even more. 80% lethality in mice. I know they're they're tinkering with things that uh, I'm sure they feel like we got it. We've got control over this, but I think Paul Rosenberg said it best. This was this was early on during the the pandemic. This is you know when all the lockdowns and things were taking place, and his advice was he said, "Look, if it turns out that this is a man-made virus, which now it's increasingly looking like it is," he says, "then uh, what we need to do is we need to separate ourselves from the people." 
who created it permanently separate ourselves from the people who created it and then exploited it by playing on the public spheres. Now, how does that happen? I don't know, but I think that's probably pretty solid advice because these are the people who, again, are claiming authority over you and authority over your life. We have to tell you what to do, citizen. Do you not understand? You have to do what we tell you because we know what's best. That's not exactly true, though, is it? I mean, look, I I don't think there's any crisis government can't make worse by making a mad grab for control and playing on the public's fears. So you're not sheep. I'm not a sheep. We're not a bunch of children who have to be herded about by people who purport to know what's best for us because they're in a position of authority. I mean, it's most basic. This is like basic civics. The proper flow of legitimate political power doesn't change just because someone in authority invokes the word emergency. That's because government at every level derives its just powers from the people whose consent is absolutely required. And those powers that we delegate or temporarily lend to government are expressly for the purpose of protecting our individual natural rights. That's what ensures government acts as a servant rather than our master. That's the premise that our entire system of governance is built on. It doesn't look or feel that way much these days, does it? Yeah, government's got us bent over a barrel, and it's not fun. And when we allow government to invert things to where our rights become little more than privileges extended to us at the whim of whoever's in charge at the moment, that's a pretty serious perversion of the flow of political power. Why? Because legitimate government requires the explicit consent of its citizens. I actually like how Ammon Bundy put it. He said, there is no human being who has a higher claim of authority over your life than you. And no group of human beings can legitimately abrogate your authority without your consent, regardless of the size of the majority. I think that's probably a good thing to keep in mind. So what that means in its simplest terms is authorities or people in positions of responsibility or authority should be seeking to convince us rather than trying to force us when they're providing direction or guidance. And be especially careful of the ones who are consumed with fear over what might happen, because these are the same people who will tend to gravitate towards using official violence to compel other people to do what they say. Just remember, they're more concerned with legal and illegal as opposed to right and wrong. Approach these people with caution. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I'd like to point to one of my great sponsors, that being GarageDoorProServices.com. If you live in St. George or Cedar City or Mesquite or Colorado City, first of all, you live in beautiful country, so you got the whole color country advantage going on there. But if you need someone to install, service, or repair garage doors, commercially or residentially, Talk to garagedoorproservices.com. Their doors are made in America. They offer quick response, much faster lead time than other companies can give you. And that matters. Call them at 435-525-2773 or go to their website at garagedoorproservices.com. So I'm going to expand a little more on why it's good to have a healthy skepticism regarding our medical system. 
In fact, Dr. Aaron Curiati, heard about him, I think I shared something from him yesterday, has an excellent article on realclearwire.com about the rise of the biomedical security state. And he says, he starts with a quote from Mark Twain. Maybe you're familiar with this one. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Dr. Curiati says, this is among the reasons we look to the past, straining as best we can through the deepening fog of time to discern lessons for our own day. Analogies to the events that came before are always imperfect, but nevertheless often useful for understanding our present moment. Thus, only a historical myopia can explain why it's become so common to describe the events involving the COVID pandemic as unprecedented, even though pandemics have tended to occur every hundred years or so. This nearsightedness, he says, is also perilous given, for instance, the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Initiative and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's recent pledge to spend $200 million on developing international biometric-based digital identifications. So consider prior regimes for which the pretext of public safety during an emergency paved the way for excessive state-sanctioned powers and to, in some cases, totalitarianism. Going back centuries, whenever the Roman Republic faced an acute existential threat like an invading army, the Senate would appoint a dictator with immense and far-reaching authority. Over a period of 300 years, dictators were appointed on 95 occasions. On the termination, upon the termination of the crisis, each was, quick, was required to quickly relinquish their authority. And they did so every time except once. And that marked the beginning of imperial overstretch and ultimately the collapse of the Roman Republic. Now, we should also recall that it was un- the unabashedly named Committee of Public Safety that carried out the French Revolution's infamous Reign of Terror. Dr. Cariotti says, look, I recognize that almost anyone who draws an analogy to the Third Reich is met with a charge of hyperbole, but one would be remiss not to mention Nazi Germany when discussing historical cases of state-sanctioned authoritarian power being used in the name of public safety. It remains a sobering, instructive, and undeniable fact that Nazi Germany was governed for virtually the entire entirety of its existence under Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution which allowed for the suspension of German law in times of an emergency. So if these historical examples seem alarmist, he says, well, consider that Australia rounded up citizens exposed to COVID, including asymptomatic people, and shipped them to detention facilities against their will. Videos of Australian detention centers made their way onto social media before tech censors dutifully scrubbed them from the Internet. Canada likewise built detention facilities for infected and exposed persons. He says authoritarian measures during the pandemic went beyond detention of suspected or actual cases. The Medical Indemnity Protection Society, or MIPS, is the singular authority for providing medical malpractice insurance in Australia. MIPS published 12 commandments to help physicians avoid disciplinary notifications by the country's governing agency. MIPS commandment number nine ominously warns doctors in Australia that mentioning findings of a published scientific study not consistent with public health messaging could potentially result in them losing their ability to practice medicine. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He says, likewise, in the United States, the Federation of State Medical Boards, or FSMB, an authority on medical licensure and physician discipline, passed a policy in May 22nd, in May of uh, 2022, rather, on disciplining physicians for misinformation and disinformation that will guide all state medical boards and, in turn, 
the nation's physicians they license. It might even become state law. Now, stunningly, the very first example of noncompliance cited involves the FSMB's October 6, 2020 assertion about the efficacy of cloth masks, an assertion later shown to be false. So if the FSMB genuinely wanted to combat falsehoods, it would start by addressing the ones that it promulgated during the pandemic. And then it could move on to those disseminated by our public health authorities who routinely flip-flopped on the science. Dr. Cariotti says, My home state, California, took up the FSMB suggestion to codify its recommendations. In fact, he says, I recently traveled to San Francisco to testify against this legislation in the state Senate. The law empowers the state medical board to discipline physicians for spreading misinformation, defined as statements that contradict the current scientific consensus and ill-defined legal standard. Undermining its own central claims, the text of Assembly Bill 2098 made multiple statements about COVID that were already outdated by the time I arrived in the Capitol. Because despite what our bureaucratic overlords posit, science constantly evolves. Alas, the controversial bill was ultimately voted into law last month, passing strictly along party lines. Now, Dr. Cariotti says, Fortunately, biomedical authoritarianism is meeting additional resistance. Both physicians and patients in California oppose AB 2098 because they recognize that a doctor with a gag order is not a doctor that can be trusted. He says they also understand that censorship is anathema to scientific progress. Along with other physicians in California, he says, I will, file, I will soon file a lawsuit in federal court challenging AB 2098 on First Amendment free speech grounds. And he says, I'm confident that this law, which undermines the medical informed consent process and ultimately harms patients, will not withstand judicial scrutiny. The burgeoning grassroots medical freedom movement constitutes the necessary corrective to what has with frightening rapidity become the new abnormal. Dang. Did you ever think you would see such a thing? And yet here it is. And this is a great place to springboard into another article, this one from Jeffrey Tucker, published on the Brownstone Institute's webpage, brownstone.org. This one's titled, Remember Those Who Cannot Speak. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, look, being on the administrative editorial side of Brownstone has been a serious education in information systems. And he says, I don't mean on a technical level. I mean on a social level. He says, I had no idea just how many people there are who simply are not in a position to speak their minds. This makes me think about the doctors, right? In, in California and elsewhere. Plenty of good people who understand, you know, this is not right. But do you speak out and lose your license? Anyway, Jeffrey Tucker says, it's strange because the whole idea of the Internet, or so I believed, was to d- democratize speech rights and opportunities. So he says, surely after its maturation, so I assumed, we could gain a greater understanding of the public mind. And he says, I further hope to this realization would lead to ever more waves of emancipation for the human project in general. And yet we've lived for a few years in a world ever more closed to diversity of opinions, at least relative to what I and others believed was our fate. When COVID hit, along with intimidating high dudgeon, came the claim that a deadly pathogen would get us all unless we complied with authoritarian diktat. Now, he says, I thought I had experienced mass panics and even intimidating political propaganda that claimed that dissent was irresponsible, even evil. Yet, he says, I'd never seen or experienced anything like this. 
Those of us who had grave doubts about the whole project of massive human quarantine in the early days were called the most grim names, grandma killers, science deniers, COVID minimizers, and far worse. Yes, there were plenty of death threats and wishes and death wishes along the way. But he says, it just so happened that I was in a position to look past all that and merely post factual information as it came in. And he says, over time, more people joined in. Many paid a heavy personal price for speaking out, job loss, and sullied reputations for starters. But for many of the dissidents, the results were truly grim. They were permanently marginalized. We're going to come back to his article, Remember Those Who Cannot Speak. It's posted in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. And before I go any further, I got to tell you, this has become one of my favorite resources, the Brownstone Institute website, brownstone.org, for anything relating to COVID. And you may say, well, it's just because they publish things that you agree with. And, you know, they, they largely they do publish things that I find make a lot of sense. But I just I think their analysis and their credibility is so much better. And they, and they draw from a very wide variety of sources, including a lot of medical doctors who were uh, very highly marginalized. Uh, Brownstone Institute, I believe, are the ones who uh, were instrumental in putting together the Great Barrington Declaration. And I'm, I'm pretty, pretty happy with the information that I get from them. So I'm not telling you everything they say is gospel and you should believe it like a little child. But I'm going to tell you that... Uh, I, I can't think of instances in which they have been off track here. So if you're, if you're having trouble finding good, credible information, this is one of those resources you may want to tap into. And they publish a ton of information on a daily basis. Now, Jeffrey Tucker's article is about those who cannot speak. And we're talking about the dissidents, especially people who paid a heavy personal price for speaking out when all the COVID nonsense was being imposed on us. He says, there's been no payoff for the intellectuals who stuck out their necks, spoke the truth and let us out of this crisis and the mythology surrounding it. In fact, he says, looking back, it's pretty clear that many wanted vaccine mandates and passports to be permanent. Why did they go away? The answer is only because dissidents dared to speak and they paid a very heavy price for doing so. He says, every day for months and since its founding, Brownstone Institute has received notes from people thankful for our content. There are two reasons that correspondents give. First, it makes them realize that they're not crazy and they're not alone. Second, the content is giving voice to their observations and concerns that they are not in a position to post under their own names. Even posting anonymously is too risky for some. So they rely on sites like Brownstone to be their voice. So who are these people? Well, he says they include medical doctors who've come to fear harassment from their medical boards and media who are both in a position to wreck their lives. They've done it to plenty of people simply as a demonstration to them all. Nurses have feared speaking out all along, knowing full well what happened to the brave souls who went public about the murderous practices of ventilating COVID cases in the early days. 
These nurses were promptly fired as a lesson to others. Professors and researchers have known better than to stand up for truth. Their skills are not very fungible in the marketplace. Losing one job could lead to unemployment forever. And for someone who spent 20 years in schooling and slaved through the academic morass, that's too heavy a price. He says, courage simply does not pay in our world today. You show it, get attacked by most and praise from some, and then your life is suddenly changed and not for the better. He says, think too of the parents who were simply grateful that the schools reopened. Speaking out against vaccine mandates and put masking put their own kids at a disadvantage in school. How could they know that teachers and administrators would not take it out on their kids in subtle ways? Journalists knew better than to write what was true. Their bosses had already made the position of the venue perfectly clear. They would go along. Pfizer money was too important to their advertising budget to enable anyone to play the hero. By the way, I just have to step aside, step over here for a quick aside. One of, one of my favorite stories of uh, journalistic or at least uh, broadcast integrity is uh, Neil Larson and his uh, co-host Julie in Idaho Falls. Their, uh, their boss at, uh, at their uh, radio group made it very clear. They are not to question the official pronouncements of, you know, public health authorities. And, and they weren't, you know, being radical, you know, they weren't taking the Alex Jones approach, but they were definitely questioning, hey, is this right? Is this ethical? Is this something that we should uh, take a closer look at? And they were told by management, look, you either toe the line or you don't work here. And to their credit, they resigned their on-air positions. They told the, they told the boss, you know, take a hike. Now, as luck would have it, a competitor across town knew a good thing when he saw it and uh, snapped them up and they have, you know, their award-winning, you know, radio show still going on. They were, I mean, they, they were picked up pretty quickly. But what I admire most is they had the guts to walk away from work. At a time when the economy was not good and the uncertainty surrounding, you know, where is this all going, was, was not clearly known. To me, that is heroic. That's just one example. I'm sure there are others, but uh, I wanted to make you aware of that. So if you're in eastern Idaho or if you're aware of uh, the Neil Larson show, that's a guy who put his principles above his own personal well-being. And I'm very happy that he landed on his feet. But how sad that he had to be put in such a position for the first place. You know, in the first place, rather. Think tanks, by the way, were the same way, says Jeffrey Tucker. They depend on their largesse from getting along with funders and their relationships with government contracts. Everyone knew what they could and could not say. And it was far easier for them to stay silent and pretend that none of this was happening. Not even the libertarians employed to fight for liberty could safely speak out. So they manufactured every manner of ideological excuse to go along. Public sector employees could not raise their voices, obviously. Certainly that goes for teachers who would have had their throats slit by the teachers' unions. Tech workers, multitudes of them, knew exactly what was going on. He says, we've received so many notes from people working at Google, Microsoft, LinkedIn, even Twitter. They have cheered what we're doing all along, but they could say nothing. And it's been driving them crazy, but what are they going to do? Nothing silences people more effectively than a six-figure salary and all the emoluments of corporate life. They don't like it, but that's the way it is. There's a mortgage to pay and kids to feed. Same goes for attorneys, many of whom wanted to challenge clearly illegal acts but were not permission to do so by their law firms. Now, some of them quit and worked pro bono and won 
but most just kept their heads down because they had to and could not afford the risk. Same goes for people who merely wanted to preserve their Facebook and Instagram pages. Say one wrong word and these companies can delete you and your whole story and friend network. And for many, that is reason enough to stay quiet. He says there just isn't money, much money, in telling the truth. And yet without truth, there is no preserving civilization. It's a wicked paradox. The only way out of it has been exactly what has happened over the last 31 months. Some people have to be willing to stand up despite the cost. This has made all the difference. Now, he says, Brownstone was started to give a platform and opportunity to those who wanted to write and think thoughtfully about the crisis that we face. What we ended up becoming was a crucial voice for the voiceless. This accounts for the traffic and the focus and perhaps what seems like success. But he says, in truth, our success around here is small potatoes compared with the vast power and money of those who, for reasons that remain unclear, threw themselves into the unscientific, untruthful crusade for censorship, despotism, and the rise and permanency of the hegemonic biosecurity state. So his point is that victory is far from assured. This is, there's also the next time about which we should all be concerned. None of the powers that allowed this to happen to us have been taken away. And we've yet to hear a single promise, much less a guarantee, that a future of freedom is ours to be had. So Jeffrey Tucker says, remember this, every article you read on this site represents the views of thousands of learned and concerned people who are not in a position to speak. Every author here has taken risks and knows the stakes of the debate in which we find ourselves at the center. There's a silent group out there of highly intelligent people who are deeply grateful to all our supporters for making this opportunity to speak truth to power possible. That's a success story. And yet I would wager there's probably not nearly as many people who know about the Brownstone Institute as who should know about it. But I love to see solutions like this. I love to see opportunities where someone can step up and make something good from something that uh, was not so great. Now, on a semi-related note, Elon Musk has, uh, has officially purchased, he's taken control of Twitter. And I don't know, you know, I mean, the, the rumors are flying, you know, but um, it sounds like the CEO, the CFO, and whoever their their chief, their grand inquisitor was, basically the, the chief censor at Google, all three were shown the door, as in walked out of the building yesterday and let go. I don't know what, uh, what the future holds, but I would sure love to see Google actually live up to its reputation. Ah, the free speech platform with actual free speech. And one of the rumors that's circulating, and, and again, I, you know, I'm, I'm repeating it, but I, I, don't, I can't verify that this is true, but uh, word on the street is that uh, President Trump's Twitter account will be reinstated as of Monday. That kind of makes me wonder, I, what, what are the folks that, uh, what's his uh, social media page, Truth? I wonder what they're going to say. That might, uh, <laughs> that might be a little bit of a conflict of interest, but... If you thought that uh, if you thought that uh, people lost their cool back in 2016 when Trump was elected, my prediction is you're going to probably see some people's heads exploding over him getting his Twitter account back. Anyway, what interesting times we live in. I'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is the Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, a quick shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. You will find contact links in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Put you in touch with every one of these sponsors. I hope that you'll take the time to get to know them. Great people. They help to keep uh, the wolf away from my door while I do my best to seek out and disseminate the best information that I can find on a daily basis. I'm not trying to get rich doing this, but I am very grateful for, you know, I, I think about that Jeffrey Tucker article and I think how grateful I am to not be working for any one company or any, you know, one corporation that uh, could could step up and say, Brian, you can talk about this, but don't you dare talk about that. You know, it's it's pretty much, I'm, I'm an independent contractor. I'm one of those gig economy workers. I'm a content creator and writer and speaker and producer and whatnot. But I am not beholden to anybody at this point. And that gives me some freedom to speak. And, and you know, hopefully you, if you haven't listened for a long time, you're probably, well, do you abuse that? You know, do you, do you go off on long, irrelevant rants? I probably do go off on long, irrelevant rants, but I do take the stewardship of what I'm doing pretty seriously. Because ultimately, the, the boss that I will be answering to at someday is God. And I want to be able to answer with a clear conscience that I used my time, my talents, my resources as wisely and for the highest purposes possible. So, with that off my chest, let's, let's dive into a couple other articles here. If you stand for freedom, limited government, and the protection of personal property rights, got some bad news for you. You, my friend, are considered a threat to democracy. Here's an article from Chuck Watson. This is from American Thinker about the Democrats' democracy versus the GOP's republic. He says, one of the Democrats' sound bites is Republicans want to destroy our democracy. So he says someone should submit a few questions to them. For instance, what is their definition of democracy? Where is that definition in the Constitution? And number three, specify actions Republicans propose that would destroy democracy as they define it. Number four, he says, specify the actions Republicans propose that would destroy our republic as specified or as defined in the Constitution. Now, this is a pretty down and dirty explanation, but it sure makes sense. The Democrats want mob rule, sheer numbers. As for those in the minority, the Democrat elite will decide what's best for them. In reality, though, the Democrats will decide what's best for themselves and those who support them. That's not what our Constitution provides. Our framers were meticulous in assuring that we were never to become a democracy. The constitutional republic they designed protected and preserved the views and opinions of all Americans not just those who live in large cities. Now, the unfairness of the Democrats' view of democracy can easily be shown visually by electoral maps by county. Even the 2020 map shows that Trump won approximately five times as many counties as Biden. Yet Biden sits in the White House when not in Delaware. A few blue islands consisting of some of our large cities scattered amidst a sea of red. Maps of previous elections are similar. It's the concept of a republic that provides representation to that sea of red. And that's becoming more and more important as Democrats continue to divide Americans. There's little credible argument left in with the, that the political views of the large Democrat-run cities have much, if anything, in common with the sea of red, or at least with the ruling elite of those cities. The Democrats act as if those who choose to live in the sea of red are beneath them in intelligence. That the Democrats know what's better 
or they know better what's best for the unfortunate sea of red dwellers, but that arrogance is finally becoming their undoing, even within parts of the Blue Islands. Horrible inflation hurts everybody, especially those in lower income brackets, yet the blue guys keep on spending. A major cause of inflation is injecting new cash into the system. Representative Clyburn admitted, we Democrats all knew that their spending bills would increase inflation, but they did it anyway. Crime is out of control in many of our large cities, and especially in those run by Democrats. The Democrats in charge have hamstrung the police and elected prosecutors who won't prosecute criminals, generally adding to the chaos. The residents are starting to voice their recognition that guns are not the cause of crime. The Sea of Red, on the other hand, provides and prefers law and order. Now, he talks about immigration. He talks about the borders wide open, for the, and this is seen live every day for those who care to see it. The blue guys see no problem in it, but uh, the Sea of Red does. Do the Blue Islanders believe they could actually survive on their own? Who would grow their kale and other vegetables? Who would grow their chicken, cattle, and pigs? Who would grow the wheat for their cooking and feeding whatever livestock they could manage to raise? Who would provide the fossil fuels still needed in a realistic world? Where would the massive factories for beloved EVs and their batteries be built? Where do they think our military traditionally has come from? Where do they think our nuclear deterrent hardware is based? Well, he says the truth before us is that the Democrats want to destroy our constitutional republic and make America a mob-rule democracy, while Republicans want to preserve our long-standing constitutional republic. I know, I had to swallow hard too and say, some of them do. A lot of the establishment Republicans, Mitt Romney, I'm looking your direction. I'm not so sure. Republicans, he says, do not want to destroy our democracy because we do not and never have had one. How does one destroy what doesn't exist? So the little blue islands may wish they hadn't started a tsunami in the overwhelming sea of red. It's ironic that the climate created by such an unwise policy may actually result in a rising sea of red levels encroaching on the small blue islands. True man-made climate change. I do like that turn of phrase, though, and I think he's actually right on the money there. All right, one other thought here, and, and we'll start with a bit of a joke. What's the difference between the government and the mafia? Well, as Eric Peters explains, the difference is the mafia doesn't pretend it's doing you a favor as it uh, threatens you. He says he's been reading Sammy the Bull Gravano's book, Underboss, and for those who don't know, he was Gravano was the second-in-command of the Gambino crime family, known as the Mafia, also known as organized crime, as distinct from legalized crime. But he says the real story of the book is not just, you know, how Gravano ended up, you know, turning on his boss and both of them ended up in prison. He says the real story is the parallelism of syndicates, of organized versus legalized crime. Sammy, he says, was a made member of organized crime. He had to earn the approbation of already made members in order to be made as by showing he could get the job done. And he did, which he describes at length in the book. Now, you get into legalized crime by getting elected or appointed. And Eric says, this is the source of the delusion that legalized crime isn't the same thing as organized crime, which is how and why it becomes a much worse thing. A demented, and for that reason, a much more dangerous thing. A politician or bureaucrat imagines himself to be a public servant 
An interesting inversion given that servants are servile. They can be commanded and are expected to obey, while public servants do the commanding, and when not obeyed, they have the legal power to punish those they serve. And these public servants also believe they serve by right and that it is our obligation to obey and hand over however much of our money they say. That is, it's criminal to disobey them. Now, Sammy the Bull knew he was a criminal and to his credit never pretended otherwise. He killed people, a terrible thing, but never had the gall to pretend he hadn't done the thing and he had the guts to do the things he did himself as opposed to pretending he didn't because he had someone else to do them. So whatever Sammy sins, he was what they call inside organized crime, a stand-up guy for that reason. Legalized crime, i.e. the government, likes to think of itself as something other than a criminal. That it does something else when it taxes people. That it isn't robbing people. No honest criminal would ever think such a thing. Which is arguably an even worse thing than simply taking what's not yours, but at least being honest with yourself and your victims about what it is. Just as rape has made something much more loathsome when the rapist insists he was merely making love to his victim. Legalized crime tells itself and you that it is providing services even when they aren't asked for. It makes you an offer you can't legally refuse while pretending you have a choice because it claims you are represented by people you never asked to represent you, chosen by other people who represent everything antithetical to you. Oh, he also says organized crime is more honest in one other way, too, in that it, much of the money it earns, it didn't take, which it therefore earns legitimately or rather morally via the free exchange of goods and services that people do want and are willing to pay for, unlike the schools, for instance. The most infamous contra-example of this uh, being what legalized crime styled prohibition, by which it meant the outlawing of the free exchange of money for alcohol. Legalized crime used violence to enforce its degree against organized crime, which merely provided that which people wanted and were very willing to pay for. And it still uses violence to enforce similar degrees, as in the lockdowns of small businesses, for the benefit of big businesses, which were allowed to remain open and thus got all the business denied the small ones. Sammy might have asked for a piece of the, of the business, but he never would have insisted he was doing it to stop the spread. It's a great article. I got a link to it in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out for yourself. Thanks again for coming and reveling in Wrong Think with me. This is The Brian Hyde Show.